It is a joy to fellowship together. So being Nehemiah chapter 13, I had initially intended to try to tackle it all at once, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So uh, I think we'll find it very useful. Now, who among us really likes a movie with a happy ending? Just like, you have to have a happy ending. If it doesn't have a happy ending, it's a terrible movie. No, right. Yes, there there are those among us. I realize that. Uh, now, I I like a thinking movie, so I don't have to have a happy ending. I almost think it's, I almost might prefer that thinking ending, but um, you know, I'm really glad that Hollywood never got their hands, uh, their their mitts on Nehemiah because if they had, it would have definitely ended in chapter 12. We would not have chapter 13 because. This, this really shows the reality of man's best efforts to, to please God and to stay faithful to God because we see it's a, it's a chapter of rebuke and restoration and repentance where the people had, they had this, this high of making a commitment to follow God and all signing, signing up, so to speak. We are committed. And over the period of time, we see that their best resolve faltered and we can look at ourselves and say, hey, I, I have not always been true to my word either. It really illustrates our need for godly leadership to uh, have accountability, not just to people, but to God's word. And I think the word accountability in Christian circles is a bit of a broken buzzword because we need more than just occasional checkups or how are, the, how are you, but really to go a bit deeper. And that's what living with and having fellowship with other believers does for us. So uh, we all need to be people who are believing God's word, obeying God's word, helping others also walk in his light. And I'll use the word intentionally, when instead of if. So when we are proud, we need to be put in our place. When we practice evil, we need fellow Christians to, to love us enough to call it evil and to seek to gently restore us to fellowship with God. As we do justly, we love mercy, and we walk humbly with God, we can help others do the same. And so we have to be open, not just to, to God's correction, but as God leads others, like we see Nehemiah here, they responded to his message. So let's pray and take this time before the Lord. Father, thank you for your goodness, and thank you for all your grace to us, that you are long-suffering and you are faithful. Your mercies are new every morning. And we delight in you, Lord, you know that our, our hearts delight to do your will, and yet we live in a fallen world, and we live in these bodies of flesh that want their own way. So we pray, Lord, that you would cause our minds to be fixed upon you. You would fill us with the Holy Spirit. You give us understanding of, of what you're going to say to each one of us, and that we would rejoice, Lord, to be chastened by you, to be corrected by you, and to walk in your ways. And thank you that... Um, you have begun the work, and you will be faithful to complete it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Revival sometimes touted as a, a cure for the malaise of a church or a people. But even genuine revivals, like what we saw in Nehemiah, they run their course. We can see this in the, the, in the seasons as well. It's not always summer. The tide is not always high. The, the trees are not always loaded with fruit. There are, there are different seasons of life that we go through. 
And we like to think that we're impervious to dry times or wandering seasons or dullness of heart because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And we have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be dry. Right, we don't have to be. But are we? Can we? Is it possible? And you know, when you're walking with Jesus Christ, there is the potential of falling because you're walking. If you were dead in trespasses and sins, there would be no potential for falling because you're dead. There's no movement at all. But as soon as we're made upright through Jesus Christ in faith, the potential for falling exists. Thankfully, he will bear us up. He will catch us. And, and if we'll be honest, we know we're not always at our best, whether we're at work, we're bowling or batting on the cricket pitch. You know, hey, it's not my day. I'm, I'm just not, not at my best. Uh, whether it's returning calls or emails or, or reading the Bible daily. And the reality of living in this world hits hard at times. And it's a struggle. But we have a part in the process. God will complete the work he's begun. But ours is to obey him and keep seeking him and submitting to him in obedience. So Nehemiah 13 Starting in verse 1, we see the effect the Word of God has on people. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Reading the word was something that, that really changed the people because it brought to knowledge the sin that they had accepted, they had accommodated in their midst. And they were moved to walk in compliance with it. Romans 3.20, it says, The law brings the knowledge of sin. The law, trying to do the law, it cannot cleanse us of our guilt, but it, it shows us where our faults are. There's things we do naturally, like coveting, Right? You see something that someone else has and you say, I want that for me. That's a sin. But it's something we do so naturally that we may not even realize that we're sinning. And it may seem strange to us as we read Nehemiah to exclude certain groups from the assembly. Now that was the assembly of the children of Israel. But God had set apart the children of Abraham as a peculiar people to whom he gave promises like in Genesis 12:3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And the Ammonites and Moabites, they had hired, um, so Barak, king of Moab, he hired Balaam to curse Israel. Remember, he, he said, hey, I'll give you honor and riches. Come and curse this people for me, because they're, they're strong. I'm, I'm a bit concerned about them, so if you curse them, we'll be off to a good start. And Balaam he, he came and, and actually blessed Israel. And this command that's referenced here is in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 5. And I like at the end, it says, God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. So God, because he loves us, he's able to turn a curse into a blessing. Now, it may seem harsh to keep the Ammonites or the Moabites out of the assembly. However, there was nothing stopping a person who was born an Ammonite or a Moabite from leaving their family, putting aside their idols, and joining themselves to Israel. 
We see that with the person of Ruth, the Moabitess, right? She left her people. She said, your God, Naomi, is going to be my God. And she was seen by the Jews as a virtuous woman. That's what Boaz said. He says, everybody knows you're virtuous. And she was accepted. So if people were willing to put aside their old heritage and their gods and their lands and to serve the Lord God only, they would be received. But if they were going to hold to their old traditions and their gods, then there was no place for them among God's people. So upon hearing the law of God, it said the Jews obediently separated the mixed multitude from themselves. And, and I imagine this was very difficult to do. Like when Abraham was told by God to, to send Hagar and Ishmael packing. He didn't want to. He loved Ishmael. He wanted him to stay. But he wasn't the child that God had, he wasn't the child of promise. So he was to go. Foreigners had no inheritance or rightful claim among those in Israel. And we see that this mixed multitude was with them from the time of the Exodus when they left Egypt. Listen to Exodus 12, 38. It says, A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. So from the time that Israel was birthed as a nation and they come out of Egypt, there's this mixed multitude that went with them. They left Egypt, but they carried with them the idols of Egypt. They had no loyalty to God. It was expedient. It was convenient. Since Egypt was totally destroyed by those plagues, hey, why not start a new life in Canaan? And they're saying, you're welcome to come along. So they did. This mixed multitude came with them. And it wasn't long until this mixed multitude caused, or I wouldn't say caused, but influenced the children of Israel to sin. If you could turn to Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 through 6, we see this interaction. We don't know exactly which nationality they were, but it really doesn't matter. This mixed multitude is anything or anyone that would oppose or be disloyal to God. This influence, Numbers 11, 4 through 6. It says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. So you see the mixed multitude, right? The mixed multitude yields to craving. They're lusting. They're remembering the foods of Egypt. And it says the children of Israel also wept. And they despaired of life. They're like, you know what? They're right. What kind of food is this that God's given us? Then that They were dissatisfied with the daily provision God was giving. And instead of looking ahead, being thankful for what they have, looking ahead to what God had promised, they were looking back and longing for really bondage, the land of Egypt. We'd like to think that the mixed multitude has no influence or power over us, right? We like to think we're totally impervious to that, like water off a duck's back. It's not going to affect me. But 1 Corinthians 15, it says to people in the church, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, why does he say do not be deceived to church? because we can be deceived as Christians to think we're unaffected by the influence of the mixed multitude. 
God's people fell into lust. And again, we're walking with Jesus. There's the potential of falling. So whatever affects us like this in our lives, whatever affects us like the mixed multitude affected God's people, where it made them despair, it made them long for the past, it took their eyes off of God and his promises, that needs to be separated from our lives. We need to remove it so that we can move forward in obedience to him. Nehemiah 13, verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. We're just going to pause there. Nehemiah is reflecting that before he had come to build the wall of Jerusalem and oversee the reforms that we see in the, pre- the, the previous chapters, Eliashib the high priest, he had been allied with Tobiah the Ammonite. Right. So we just talked about the Ammonites and the Moabites. This man, he opposed the building effort. He was the one that scorned them and said, if a, if a fox climbs on that wall, it's going to fall apart. And this unholy alliance was likely due to a marriage, as we see in Nehemiah 6.18. It says, for many in Judah were pledged to him, to Tobiah, because he was the son of, son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Marriage in Israel was largely influenced by economic or social considerations, and it really united families in a way that it it doesn't in our culture, where you began to really intertwine with your business practices and your alliances with other people. And that's why God had commanded that his people marry within Israel and within a tribe so that the inheritance stayed within the tribe. Now, Nehemiah has been away for about 10 to 12 years. He had assumed his duties after the dedication of the wall. Remember, he gets the two Thanksgiving choirs and they walk along the wall. They meet at the temple. They're singing. They're playing the instruments. The rejoicing of Israel is heard afar off. But he went back to Persia. He had been the cupbearer. And now after 10 to 12 years, based upon this time frame, he returns to see how things are going. So there was this massive revival, this huge change, this rejoicing, all these people going, yes, we're going to serve God. Yes, we're going to obey him. But while he was away, the high priest, who had previously been allied with Tobiah, now does the unthinkable. So we pick up in the middle of verse 6. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms. And I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So think about being Nehemiah. You know, you leave Jerusalem on a high. You've set people in charge. Everything's looking really great. You're like, wow, think of what God's done. Amazing. People are rejoicing, Thanksgiving choirs singing. And then after about over a decade, he gets leave from the king, long service leave. 
and he comes back to assess how things are going. And he's shocked and grieved when he finds out that storerooms that were supposed to hold the tithes and the offerings for the Levites, they've been cleared out and it's a stateroom for Tobiah the Ammonite. How can this be under the guidance of the high priest? So he's very grieved. Here's a guy who's forbidden from being in the congregation, being in the assembly of Israel, and he's living in the temple. Pretty remarkable. Really unbelievable. And you see how Nehemiah addresses it. He says, the evil that Eliashib had done. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't say, you know, Eliashib's settling for less than God's best right now. He doesn't say that. He says he's doing evil. He calls evil, evil. And then he he responds to uphold God's word and his righteousness. And I like that Nehemiah told Eliashib this. He doesn't just tell everybody else. Um, it's easy to rant about the sins of others to everyone but the guilty party. But he goes to the guilty party and says, what's this evil? And he goes in there and he just throws all of his stuff out. I think if we're going to stand for righteousness, we need to call evil evil. We have to call it what it is. And I think in our day of political correctness and subjective truth, calling anything wicked or inherently evil, it's not going to attract many likes. Um, people don't want to even associate with those who, I, who take a clearly unpopular stand based upon Scripture. And we can be guilty of being vague when the Bible is very clear. And we need the boldness and conviction of Nehemiah when we see evil, even done by the high priest, we call it that. I like that he doesn't look the other way because of the priest's authority. Because he went in there not as a governor or as a ruler, but as a Jewish man who loved God. And he had all the authority he needed to take that action. Because what was happening was wrong. And he did something about it. Now, we're not to be judgmental or to seek to find fault with others. But when we're grieved by evil acts, we should approach that one and deal with it biblically, as Galatians 6.1 says. Proverbs 9.8, it says, Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Godly rebuke, that's to express sharp disapproval in the conduct of others, motivated by love to seek restoration. And that's really important. So he goes into the room, he throws out all of Tobiah's stuff. He didn't respect the privacy of Tobiah or his things more than God. God was the one he was honoring here. Nehemiah's zeal reminds me of Phineas in the time when the Moabites had led the, the Midianites, excuse me, had, had brought sin into the camp through their idolatrous prostitution. There was this period of time where uh, instead of Balaam, on his suggestion that they had um, corrupted Israel through their idolatry, he couldn't curse them, so he brought sin into the midst. And it said that there was a plague that was sent that had killed 24,000 of the people. And as they're all weeping at the temple, at the, the tabernacle in those days, grieving, 
Phineas sees and everyone else sees this ruler in Israel bringing this Midianite prostitute into his tent. And he saw that, and they had been commanded to kill anyone who has joined themselves to Baal Peor. And he took a spear, and he went into their tent, and he got them both at once, just skewered them both through. And he's like, this is wrong. And God had given him that specific command. Now see what God said in Numbers 25.10. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Now, Phineas wasn't being zealous for himself. He was being zealous for God. Nehemiah, he was not being zealous for himself or because he was offended that his legacy had been tainted during his absence, that he took personal offense, that Tobiah had moved into the temple. No, he was zealous for God and the glory of God. Jesus, the same thing when he showed that zeal to purge the temple of the money changers and those who sold doves, those who were carrying burdens through the temple. He stopped them and he said, this is my father's house and you have made it a den of thieves. Zeal for his house had eaten him up. Now we're not commanded as Phineas to kill evildoers, right? To, to ferret out uh, heretics and skewer them through with a spear. Um, but we ought to be first cleansed for our own sin to remove from our lives what pollutes, what should not be there, because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. I like what Matthew Henry said. He says, Our Savior thus cleansed the temple, that the house of prayer might not be a den of thieves, and those, and thus those that would expel sin out of their hearts, those living temples, must throw out all those things that are the food and fuel of lust. The temple stores should be brought in again, the vessels of the house of God put in their places, but the chambers must first be sprinkled with the water of purification. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He commanded to cleanse the rooms, the water of purification was sprinkled, and then the things that should have been stored there were brought in, the grain offerings, the frankincense. So the temple, which had been used to accommodate Tobiah, now returned to their proper place. If you could please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6.18, we see a passage where Paul had rebuked the church for sexual sin in the midst. In this case, it was a consensual incestuous relationship. This should have been declared evil and dealt with biblically with discipline but it had been celebrated because the people's misunderstanding of God's grace. People in the world, they are slaves to sin. It is expected that they would be in bondage to it. Extending grace to believers does not mean shrugging at sin or denying the sinfulness of their choices, but to call evil what it is and take appropriate action. So we see 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. It's written, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to ensure that our hearts and minds are purified before God. That we don't have a place for idols or sinful lusts to remain unchecked in our hearts. Tobiah and his stuff needs to go so that we can have God's sacrifices in its proper place again. Now here's the truth. Eliashib the high priest, he didn't have a problem with accommodating Tobiah, did he? He's the high priest, but he didn't see a problem with it. He was the one who oversaw it. He's the one who okayed it. It took Nehemiah walking through and inspecting the place for him to come to grips with, wow, what I've done is actually wrong. It brought the wickedness to light. And so we need to invite Jesus into our hearts, into our lives, and say, I want you, Lord and Master, my Savior Jesus Christ, to look around and see if there's something that needs to be cleared out of here. You show me. You shine your light upon it. Because there's things in our lives, like Eliashib, he he had a blind spot with Tobiah. He was allied with him. He should not have been allied with him. And it took Nehemiah coming in and pointing it out. The people who were buying and selling doves in Jesus' day, that was under the authority of the high priest too. They didn't have a problem with it. They had a problem with Jesus coming in and clearing out their, their wares, right? Who gave you this authority to Jesus? And he's like, this is my father's house. He has all the authority. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So let's invite him to come in. We say, search me, Lord, know me. You know me already, but search me and show me if there be any wicked way in me. You throw it out. You help me to throw it out. I'm committed to do whatever you say. Because there's areas where we don't have a problem, but God does. And rightfully so. Nehemiah 13, verse 10. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. So Nehemiah takes a stroll through the temple. He sees Tobiah's stuff. He clears that out. And he notices this, like, really, you know, a lack of manpower. Where, where is everybody? Where are all the Levites? You know, there were hundreds of you guys, and there's just a handful. Turns out that the Levites were not receiving the tithes or the offerings at all. They didn't have the the means to support their families or themselves, so they had gone to their own fields to try to make their living. So they weren't, they had to leave the work of the temple to somebody else. You know, Tobiah's there. It's just, things are really in a bad way. So Nehemiah goes to the rulers responsible for overseeing the people, and he just asks them, why is the house of God forsaken? It doesn't say what they said. There's no really good answer to that, is there? Well, you know, I'm pretty busy. and No. Like, why is it forsaken? You guys made an oath before God. We read about it in Nehemiah 10.39. These were the men who had written their name and said, For the children of Israel, the children of Levi, shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine and oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers are, 
and we will not neglect the house of our God. So maybe, you know, Tobiah's in the storeroom. There's really no place for the things to be brought in. And so the Levites are like, well, we're out of here. What place is there for us? And it just had this knock-on effect where the rulers aren't contributing, the people see no need to contribute, and the Levites are going without. And so the temple ministry is not happening. At some point, I don't know why, because we don't have their answer, but at some point, the house of God stopped being a priority. They stopped giving like they were. Over the decade that Nehemiah was gone, things had begun to slip. These leaders, they ought to have set a good example by keeping their word, exhorting the people to do the same. Not one of those leaders, remember, was coerced to give. They were not forced to sign their name. They had voluntarily said, I commit to, to, I promise this to God. They knew it was the right thing to do, but for some reason they just stopped doing it. Can you identify with that? If you think 10 years ago, perhaps, maybe 20 years ago, five years, it really doesn't matter. But there was a time where you thought, this is a good thing for me to do. But for some reason, you just stopped doing it. At some point, it just wasn't quite as important as it was. And the Lord showed me one thing at least one thing in my life that he wants me to change. How many times we said we were going to do something or avoid something that God had convicted us of, but we, in the end, neglect to keep our word? We do, but God doesn't forget. He doesn't neglect to keep his word. All we say, all we do, it's seen and heard by the God who says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we'll be judged according to the words that we speak, even as true as God keeps his word to us. It's that unbreakable. Now, I love the second part of verse 11. It says, and I gather them together and set them in their place. He put them in their place, right? There's a couple of meanings here. One of them is that he gathered the, Le- the Levites together and directed them to their posts. And said, guys, you're to serve God whether or not the tithes are rolling in. You're to put your faith in him to provide for you, whether or not the storehouses are full or empty. You trust God. You keep serving God. Do not neglect the ministry of God's house. Continue offering the sacrifices. You be faithful. Now, another meaning fits very well with the English vernacular that he called those leaders together, and he put them in their place. And he reminded them of who they were, He reminded them of who God is. He reminded them of what God had commanded them. He reminded them of what they had promised God, and he showed them that they had not fulfilled it. And he exhorted them to make good on their promise they had made to God. They may have been leaders, and there was nobody else who would sit them down and talk to them this way, but Nehemiah was not afraid of them. He was God's man, and he put them in their place. He reminded them who God was. Now, a lot of what passes for putting people in their place could be better described as an attempt to claw back control for ourselves or to elevate ourselves in some way. Would you agree with that? That's what passes for it. It's like, you know, remember who I am, or kind of a little threatening there. We don't see any of that with Nehemiah. He's not trying to assert his authority over them. He's reminding them of their position before God and who God is. Like, guys, this is the God that we serve. This is what God has said. This is what you have said. Make good on that. 
I exhort you, brothers, sisters, to do that. Now, we can manipulate and change. We can, we can manipulate people. We can coerce people. We can get people to change behavior for a time. But God's the only one who can really put a person in his place. And if we will not be put in our place by others when they lovingly uh, rebuke or exhort us, then God can put us in their place, all of us. Because who is man before God? What is man that God is even mindful of him? Proverbs 30, there's a verse in there that it says it's unbearable when a servant rules. You know, you give someone a little bit of authority who has none, and they can abuse that authority, right? We can only wield authority rightly when we recognize God's supremacy over us, that we are ruled by him. We are governed by him. I cannot humble you. You cannot change me. But God is able to humble us all. And we should humble ourselves before God, shouldn't we? That's what the Bible says. You know, humble yourselves before God that he may exalt you in due time. Don't say, Lord, humble me. No, you humble yourself. Don't ask God to do for you what he's told you to do. Because through his strength, you can humble yourself before God. Instead of being one who lords their authority over others, we should be the servant of all. Jesus provides that perfect example. How did he wield his authority? Well, he stripped down and put on a towel and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. He hung on a cross and was crucified for our sin. That's how he used his authority, to be crucified, to humble himself, to make himself of no reputation, taking on himself the form of a servant, and embracing the cross for our sakes. That's authority. And we see Nehemiah doing that as well. Verse 13, And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Pedaiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. After setting all in their place, whether it's the grain offerings or the rulers or the Levites, Nehemiah appoints this task of distributing to the Levites to faithful men to make sure that the Levites were actually getting the just due that God had set apart for them. I like that Nehemiah appointed men who were considered faithful. This suggests, as he's been away for over a decade, that he talked to people and said, who is faithful among these priests? Who will get this job done? It reminds me of the apostles when the, um, the Greek widows were being neglected in the daily uh, menstruation of the goods. And he said, The apostle said, seek among yourselves men filled with the Holy Ghost and wisdom to that we can appoint over this business. They weren't going to leave the teaching of the word or being in prayer. And so they had the people say, they, they asked the people. They were perfectly capable, the people were, of discerning who these faithful ones were. Because they too had the Holy Spirit, right? So this quality of being faithful 
We see it in Nehemiah's day. We see it in the apostles' day. That word faithful, which is to be trustworthy, steadfast, reliable, that's a very important one. People whose faith is in Christ is solid, who can be counted on to fulfill responsibilities before God, those are the ones God wants to use. He will use them. If you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we see that it's required in servants or stewards that one be found faithful. People who are loyal to God. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring light to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Paul wrote this letter and he was taking a bit of heat, that he was asserting himself too much, that he was taking too much authority upon himself. And we see this complaint leveled at Moses as well. The one who didn't ask to be chose, but God chose him. God raised him up to be a deliverer. And the people, the rulers, came against him and said, you take too much upon yourself. Well, Paul, they were saying, you know, he, he doesn't, he's not really quite the orator. He's in it for the money. And he always had to defend himself against these accusations. And so he says, guys, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you or a human court. God judges me. And he's going to expose me as well as you. He's, I have a clear conscience before God, but the same God that judges me, he is going to expose you. He's going to reveal you to be truth or an error. So Paul, he took a lot of heat for his stern words to the Corinthians. So did Moses. So did Jesus. And I bet Nehemiah did too. Remember, Nehemiah has been away for 10 years. When he returned, he quickly sets things in order. He sets them in their place. Now, do you like it when people, let's say at your work, come in and they immediately start changing things? No. I don't think there's one person that embraces that idea. I want someone to come in and change everything. No, we have, we think we know better than them because we're closer to the situation, right? And maybe we do. I, I don't like to come home and see the furniture in a different place. You know what I'm saying? We get quite comfortable with how things are. And we're like, I used to know where things were in this house. Now I have no idea. This is annoying or this is frustrating or something. But Nehemiah rolls in. He's throwing stuff out of Tobiah's area. He's calling out the high priest as doing evil. He's now setting a fire under the rulers who are probably quite content with the status quo. He's getting the Levites in. He's just shaking everything up. He's like, what is going on, people? Don't you remember the promise you made to God? Not everybody's happy about this. Forget about Tobiah. The high priest probably isn't very happy about this. The Levites aren't too pleased. I guarantee you there was a strong undercurrent of opposition that Nehemiah had to face, and he had to face it in the strength of God, 
with a clear conscience knowing that he was doing God's work. He was not called to temple ministry, but he wanted to ensure the ministry was happening and it was it, steps were taken to improve it. That's what he was doing. He wanted to align the practices of God's word, of God's people with the word. He talks to Eliashib personally about the evil he did in bringing Tobiah into the, the temple. He confronted the rulers. He put the Levites in their place. So he, he goes to each person. And let's not make the mistake of talking to anyone about the problem rather than the guilty party at first, like what Jesus has commanded us. So we can be maligned for doing good, for doing something that we God brings to our attention. That's not popular. But Nehemiah is willing to do it. Now, Nehemiah prays in that last verse, the first of several remember me prayers. Next week, we'll talk about those in greater depth. But he says, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Again, Nehemiah is not taking personal offense for the things that have happened. He's not feeling like this is a personal affront. He sees it as an attack upon God. He doesn't see it as undermining his authority. He's not in the picture. He just wants to be remembered. He's not saying, Lord, reward me. Man, this heat, this is rough. This is really a difficult time. I hope I'm getting something good out of this. What, what's in this for me, God? He just says, remember me. And he reminds me of the thief on the cross because his only plea to Jesus was, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had nothing to stand on. He had nothing to say, look, God, see, I've done all this stuff for you. Now you do what I want. You do something for me. He says, Lord, remember me. And it's good for us to have that humility. We see that Nehemiah's heart was right in this. In God's book of remembrance, Nehemiah wanted his name written. To be remembered by God for good. Can you think of anything better than that? To be remembered by your king as someone who has done something good for him. And you may think, what did Nehemiah have to lose, really? Like he's a man with authority? Well, everything men hold dear, his reputation, his power, his authority, even his life. People in Israel were killed for far less. Remember Naboth, he's killed because he won't sell his vineyard to the king. He's like, hey, sell me your vineyard. He's like, no, it's my family's inheritance. They sought, they brought false witnesses against him and killed him. How about Jesus? He cleanses the temple. They go around figuring out how we're going to kill this guy. And within days, he had been crucified. So Nehemiah has everything to lose. But he says, if God remembers me, I have all. I'm not losing anything because my security and my comfort and my value is found in God. God will sustain me. God will vindicate me. God will keep me. I have an eternity to spend with him. Isn't it cool that these words that Nehemiah wrote are in biblical canon? He has been remembered, hasn't he? Not one word of God's will fail. The word canon, it means rule or measuring stick. And Nehemiah has set us such a good standard. 
of a man who feared God and a man who obeyed God and a man who did hard things in a, in a tough time where there's people outside who are trying to destroy him, discredit him, distract him from the work, and opposition on the inside where people are afraid and they feel uh, they don't like the things that he's doing. Faithfulness, zeal, fearlessness because he feared God. Now one big takeaway I have from this passage is we're not able to reform ourselves and even to remain reformed without the power of the Holy Spirit. We can say, I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to follow through. And you very well may for a while. But at some point, our priorities begin to drift. We can be like the children of Israel where we begin to wander. We just forget. This is our, this is our nature. Our, the nature of this flesh. God has given us a new nature, but we're still in a body of flesh that we must contend with. We need the truth of God's word to live right. We need to be among fellow believers who love God, who love us and follow Jesus, who will uh, encourage us to keep walking in that way. Blessed is the man that has a brother and a sister to come alongside and lift him up when he has fallen when he is overtaken in a trespass, who will say that word that we need to hear, that rebuke, that exhortation, so we might come to our senses and return to God as at the beginning. And blessed are those who seek to gently restore those who have fallen, who are not high-minded, who are not like Nehemiah never said, Lord, I've got it all together. Why can't these people just figure it out as if he had? He's like, Lord, remember me, the good things that I've tried to do for you, how I've tried to maintain worship here. Now, Jesus, he addresses seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of the Revelation. Each church was like a candlestick that was in its place, right? They had been put in their place. They were shining the light of the gospel throughout the world. And Jesus said something to the church of Ephesus. I believe he's saying to us today in Revelation 2, 5, He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So it's good for us to remember the Lord and to repent, to agree with him. Recognize what his word says, agree with it, but then put into practice those steps that our lives would be in alignment with his will and his word. Let's invite Jesus to walk through our hearts and to point out if, if there's some of Tobiah's junk that's kind of moved in, um, if there's money changers, if, if our hearts have become merchandise, if, if there's a mixed multitude, if the offerings and sacrifices aren't where they ought to be, if there's burdens being carried. That was one thing that Jesus forbade to be carried through. It's like, don't carry burdens through here. This isn't a place to carry your burdens. Let's let the Lord take those burdens. Let's, and, and that's another one. Forgive me. I said, let the Lord take them. We're to be casting them. Lord, take this burden away. No, you give it up. You cast it. And you keep casting it when you realize that you're picked it up again and you're carrying it around. Be casting your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you, James says. It's that present imperative text, the continual casting. Keep casting them. When you find yourself burdened, cast those cares. If your your heart is like a zoo of bleeding merchandise, 
there, it's time for those to go. That noise is just going to prohibit the worship of God. If devotion is now burdensome, let's come to God. Let's confess that. Say, Lord, I have been among those who said, what a weariness. What a weariness to come before you. And God says this about his priests were saying this. And because his priests were saying this, the people were saying that. So God takes aim at us. He takes aim at me. He sends his word to your heart. And may we respond. Take those steps to cleanse the temple. He can purify us with his blood and make us useful for his kingdom. Let's thank him. Lord, thank you for this example that we have of Nehemiah. Thank you for your word that is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. And thank you for the blood of Jesus that has atoned for our sins and for the grace that you've shown us in revealing the truth. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would be bare before you, that, that we would invite you in truly to look at our hearts and to show us if there's things that are out of place and that we've given space to Tobiah. We've accommodated certain things that, that maybe 10 years ago we wouldn't have imagined. But Lord, you are able to search our hearts and you know us all. You are the judge of all the earth and you will do right. I pray that you would illuminate us, Lord, by your grace, that you would quicken us according to your mercies and that you would wash us clean. You would make us those, those profitable, faithful servants and that you would remember us, Lord, for good. Lord, we haven't done anything, but what is our duty to do? We are unprofitable servants, but you are able to cause all things to abound. You are able to accomplish greater things than we can imagine. So, Lord, we just confess our sin before you. We lay ourselves before you and ask that you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.